It was uh, the summer of 2010, and I was all the way across the world on the ground in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, spending my entire summer, 10 weeks, to share the gospel with Muslim college students in Malaysia. And I was teaching an alpha course um, for new Christians. And I was teaching the section of the course on why Jesus had to die. And as I was preparing the content for the day before I was supposed to speak, I just had this moment where I wasn't sure that I believed he did. Now imagine a 20-year-old pastor's kid born and raised in the church giving his summer to missions doubting the very foundation of his faith. It rocked my world. And the reason that I was doubting was because I had spent at this point about a month building relationships with college students my age at the time who had been raised Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim. And this thought just kind of popped into my brain. Would I believe if I was born where they were born? Or do the things I believe, are they, are they just a product of how I've been raised? Because that's what I believed about their religion. I believed that their religion was just a product of how they'd been raised, and if they could just see the truth of the gospel, they would be awakened from their doubt and darkness and they would meet Jesus, and yet here I was, doubting my own faith. I'll tell you that story because I want you to understand something. When we talk about doubt, it's crucial for us to understand that doubt is not a sin. Doubting God is not a sin. And that might not sit well with you this morning because the church for years and years and years and centuries and centuries has tried to squash doubt and just like push it to the back hallways and not discuss it. But this morning we're, we're gonna talk about doubt. My name is uh, Jake Davis and I'm the college and creative pastor here at Mountaintop and I'm so excited this morning that we get to deal with this issue because so many of you asked this question. What do I do when I doubt? Why do I doubt? If, if I have the spirit of God within me, if, if I've accepted the, the message of Jesus, the good news, why do I doubt? And, and what should I do when I doubt? And these are all good questions. And I think as we, as we kind of discover this morning what exactly doubt is and how to combat it, we're going 
lean into scripture because we also had a lot of questions about like how can I trust the Bible and how do I know it's true? And I think these two topics kind of go together because when we doubt, we turn to the word of God for answers. But it's crucial that we understand that doubt is not a sin. And you might be asking, Jake, how do you know that? And the way I know that is because I believe scripture tells us so. If you look at the men who gave their lives for this very gospel, who spent a good chunk of their lives walking with Jesus, who we believe is God in the flesh, if you look at their lives, it is riddled with doubt. And the more and more you read the New Testament, the more you will realize that it's a book about doubt. The disciples, their entire time with Jesus, they doubt that he is who he says he is. They doubt that it's going to come to fruition like he says it will, to the point where most of them abandon him at his crucifixion. So much like when we talk about suffering, we look at the Bible, there's, there's suffering there, so why do we expect not to suffer? Well, there's doubt within the pages of these books by the people who, who call God their father, who, who have accepted the gospel message. They, they, they doubt, so why would we not expect to? It's, it's not a sin, but if we leave it unaddressed, it can pull us away from God. And so this morning, I want to spend a few moments to start kind of looking at a few stories of doubt that the disciples share with us and see what we can learn from them. The first is in Matthew chapter 14. And let me set the context a little bit here. What has just happened before what we're about to read is Jesus has just fed the crowd of 5,000 people. Right, he's, just, he's fed this crowd that's probably actually more like 10,000 or 13,000, but 5,000 men were there that day, and he, he was fed this crowd with just five loaves, two fish, and, and, he, and he's, he's fed the whole, the whole crowd. He's done this miraculous event. And then him and his disciples kind of pull away. And he goes to a quiet place, and they get back on their boat, and they're going to cross the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to meet up with them later. That's the context going into the story. It says this in Matthew 14, verse 23. It says, The boat was already, already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. You might have come in the room this morning and you're like, actually, this is great because I'm actually struggling with this issue. I'm actually having thoughts of, of doubt in my life. And so maybe for you this morning, like the disciples, you, you kind of feel like you're a considerable distance from God. There's like this, there's this gap between you because the faith that you once had has now been impinged upon by doubt. You might feel buffeted by the waves. There might be something going on in your life right now that's just kind of like beating up against the bow of your ship. And like it's, it's threatening to sink you, right? Like the waves are crashing over your life and the circumstances of life are causing you to, to doubt that God is good, that God is who he said he would, is and he'll do what he said he's gonna do. And you might feel like the world is just against you. You might even feel like God is against you this morning. 
and it's causing you to have feelings of doubt. Good news, Jesus is in this story too, and he's in yours as well. It says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. Hold up, that should have been like in bold, big capital letters, because that's not something we see every day, right? He's walking on the Sea of Galilee. Like, he's just like taking a nice leisurely stroll across the lake, right? Like, that's not normal, Matthew. Gotta give us some warning, dude. Walking on the lake. Here comes Jesus, right? That shouldn't surprise us, though, right? Because he just fed 10,000 people with like one lunch. Took one happy meal and he turned it into a feast. So why would it be surprising to us that he's not walking on the lake? But, but here he is. And, and, and what is the disciples' response? When they see him walking on the lake, they're terrified. Well, yeah, because that's not a normal occurrence, right? Well, just typically when you're out on the boat, see someone walking by. And they say to themselves, it's a ghost. And they cry out in fear. Keep in mind here that the disciples are a considerable distance from land. They've traveled a little bit. The effects of that leftover bread and fish have probably started to wear off a little bit. They're getting a little hungry on their journey because it's been a while since they've ate. And they're fearful and they are terrified. And maybe they've begun to forget the miraculous signs that they've seen in the past. And their current experiences are telling them to fear and to doubt what they're seeing. Here's the truth. When we doubt in our lives, it is usually a product of fear, famine, forgetfulness, or firsthand experiences. Doubt is, is usually tied to fear. When we feel fearful of something in our life, when, when we feel terrified, it's kind of a natural response to, to respond in fear, right? And to, to doubt because of that fear. But it's also true that sometimes we can get into doubt because it's been a while since we've had our last meal. That's been true in my life. I know when I am not in the word, when I'm not feasting on the word of God, and I go through seasons of famine, I'm more likely to doubt the truths of that book because I'm just a little hungry and I've been, been ignoring my hunger. And oftentimes this, this can lead to forgetfulness, right? Like we just forget how God has been faithful to us. We, f- we forget the miraculous things he's done in our life before. We, we forget how he's proved himself true to us before. And our firsthand experiences, the, the things that are going on in our life currently, they're like whispering, hey, you should doubt whether or not this whole thing is true. See, see doubt's not, it's not a sin. It's, it's a natural product of our humanity. It's a natural, natural response to, to fear and famine and forgetfulness and firsthand experiences. But listen to this. I, this. I love this, right? Matthew says, 
But Jesus immediately said to them. Like he, feel, he fills the space occupied by their doubt, the silence occupied by their doubt. He fills it immediately. And he says to them, take courage. It is I. It is I. And, and they all recognize his voice, right? Because he's, the, he's their rabbi. He's their leader. He's the man they've been following. He reassures them, don't be afraid. Peter's still a little skeptical, though. So he says, okay, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And we do this in our lives, too, right? When, like, we're doubting and, and, and Jesus kind of shows up, God kind of shows up, we're like, okay, I think maybe I can trust again, but, like, if it's really you, why don't you tell me to do this? And Peter's kind of testing his faith a little bit here. I love Jesus' response. It's just one word, simple. Come. Come, Peter. Come to me. It says, then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. See, see, doubt is an invitation for us to take a step toward Jesus. When we doubt, Jesus invites us to take a step towards him. Our, our natural inclination might be to kind of step back and create some space for that doubt, but Jesus is like, no, 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 fill that space. Come, come closer to me. And here's what I believe we'll discover. It's that doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's an element of faith. This is what Paul Tillich says. He says, therefore, there is no faith without risk. There's no faith without taking that step out of the boat onto the water toward Jesus. Doubt is an invitation for us to step toward him. But that risk can be scary sometimes, right? Peter takes that step out of the boat, and it says, when he saw the wind, when he got focused on his circumstances again, when his firsthand experience became real to him again, it pulled him out of that spiritual experience that he was having, and he was afraid, and he began to sink, and so he cries out, Lord, save me. The truth is, is that when we, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, it can feel like we're sinking. But what Peter finds is that, that doubt is actually an opportunity to build trust. He, he was doubting that Jesus was who he says he was. He, he was doubting that Jesus was the man walking towards him on the water. And instead of just kind of shrinking back into the ship, he finds that it's time to take a risk and build trust back. To kind of step into trusting God again. But he begins to, to sink, and again, immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I think oftentimes we read this and we think it's like Jesus is getting on to him. 
But I, I think it's the exact opposite. I think he's encouraging him. Like, why did you have such little faith? Why did you doubt me? I, I, trust me. I am who I say I am. Trust me. And Peter climbs into the boat. And in that moment, the wind dies down. And, and Jesus says, Peter, if you just trust me, I'll reveal to you that I am the Son of God. Those were, who were in the boat with Peter worshiped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Because here's what the scriptures confirm over and over and over again. Doubt is not a sin. It's actually an indication of growing faith. Time and time again, we see characters throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and the New walk through faith, towards a, through, through doubt, towards a deeper faith. And here's what we learn from Peter. It doesn't matter how many times we sink as long as we get back in the boat with Jesus. It doesn't matter how many times we are tempted to sink into our doubt as long as we just take a step back into the boat with Jesus. Because what we'll find is when we trust Jesus and we take a step back into the boat with him, the wind will calm down. And we'll be reminded of his, his faithfulness. There's another disciple who doubts in scripture. His name is Thomas. In the book of John, we're told that after Jesus dies and, and raises again, that the disciples are all together and they get to see Jesus, but Thomas doesn't. And this is what the story tells us in, in, in John chapter 20. It says, now Thomas, also known as Denimus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. He wasn't there, he didn't get to see him. But what did, how, did it, how did John refer to him? Thomas, one of the 12. Now, you might have heard Thomas referred to as doubting Thomas, but that's, we put that into Scripture. Scripture doesn't, doesn't tell us to call him that. John calls him one of the 12. You see, because what, what Thomas realizes is that doubt doesn't make him any less of a disciple. Doubt doesn't make him any less of a follower of Jesus. Listen, I will confess to you <clears throat> that I'm a Gator fan, or I'm a Florida Gator fan. I know it's tough after last night. Actually, kind of helped my message out a little bit, to be honest with you. <clears throat> I, I severely doubt that we're going to get qualified for a bowl this year. Like, I severely doubt we're going to win another game after last night's performance, okay? But here's the reality. That doesn't make me any less a fan. Because the circumstances of this season are telling me that it's kind of unfortunate, right? I still have faith in my team, even in the face of doubt. I'm still a fan. I'm still going to follow them. I'm still going to tune in every Sunday, even though it causes me great heartache. Because doubt doesn't make me any less of a fan. And doubt doesn't make us any less a follower of Jesus. It's a natural thing that we go through. The disciples come to Thomas and they say, hey man, we saw him. We've seen the Lord. But he says to them, listen guys, 
Unless I see those nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. And I think that's like the perspective that a lot of us take in life, right? Like, show me, then I'll believe. It says, a week later. Truth is, sometimes doubt lingers. There's no quick fix. A week later, they're in the house again, and this time Thomas is with them, because I'm sure he, he continued to put himself around the disciples, because he's like, listen, I might be doubting, but I'm not going to miss an opportunity to see Jesus again, right? So he's always with them. And, and this is awesome. It says, though the doors were locked, Jesus comes into the room. He stands among them, and he says, peace be with you. And the text says that he goes straight to Thomas, obviously knowing his doubt. And he says to him, come here. Put your finger here. See my nail-scarred hands. Reach out your hand. Put it, put it here in my side. It's me, Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says to him, my Lord, my Lord, my God. Because for Thomas and for many of us, we can begin to realize that, that doubt is actually an indication of growing faith. That our faith is growing. But not just that. Did you notice that Jesus just kind of came through the door? They had locked it because they were scared. Jesus comes through it. And in our lives, when it seems like there's no way, when it seems like it's impossible for God to prove himself again, he creates his own doorways. Because often, doubt is a doorway. Doubt is a doorway to deeper faith. And if we'll just kind of endure through, we'll find Jesus waiting for us on the other side, being like, look, I am who I say I am. You can, you can trust me. You can trust me. When I was in Malaysia, I didn't really know what to do with this crisis of faith I was having. So I had an honest conversation with my mentor who was leading the trip, and he looked at me and he said, Jake, why don't you just, like, read the Word of God? Why don't we just read the Word of God together? And, and we turned in our Bibles together to, to a pretty familiar face, pretty familiar place. John chapter 3. Oh, man, I've read it thousands of times. Right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Right? It's like the one on all the billboards. I read it a thousand times, but here I was doubting my faith. And, and in this moment, Jesus became real to me again because I turned towards Scripture. And, and in verse 14, just before this, we never read this part. We never read this part. We just go straight to 16. 
But it says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And in that moment for me, the Son of Man, Jesus, was, was lifted up. And I heard him whispering to me in my spirit. He's like, would you just turn to me and look at me again with fresh eyes? Would you accept the love I have for you? And it was in scripture that my doubts were answered. And so I think that that's the logical place to turn. It's to scripture. And you might say, yeah, I have doubts, but how can I trust this, this book that was written thousands of years ago? How can I trust that this is the word of God, that it has anything relevant to say to my life today? And so I wanna answer that question for you very quickly. And in order to do so, we have to, we have to get a few terms out of the way, right? So you can just kind of understand where this book comes from because the reality is it didn't just drop out of the sky one day, right? There's a process to putting it together. And that process is called canonization. Canonization. And here's the reality. The Bible tells us that God is love. And love requires relationship. And so in order to build a relationship with us, God needs to communicate with us, right? Because relationships require communications. And so he communicates through humanity. He writes, he has human authors write the Bible. And the book is written thousands of years ago. The first half of it is uh, the Jewish scriptures. The second half of it is the, the Christian response to Jewish, to, to Jewish scriptures, the Christian uh, fulfillment of Jewish scriptures. And canonization might sound like a big term, might be confusing to you, but this is, this is simply all it means. It's just the process by which the books that we currently have in our Bible were selected and accepted as scripture. That's it. That's, that's all it is. And this, this happened from about 200 B.C., 200 years before Jesus was here, to about 280, 250 A.D. at the latest. And, and what happens is uh, between the Jews who are trying to decide what their holy scriptures are and the Christians who were Jews who began to follow Jesus decide what their kind of holy scriptures are. And the, the, the intersection of those is how we get this book here. And so for, for visual aid, in, in Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures are referred to as the Tanakh. And it's just an acronym, and it's real simple, all right? Tanakh. The T is for, for Torah, and it's law, right? It's the first five books of the Bible. And those first five books of the Bible are like the story of Israelite history. And it's kind of like the foundational text of the Jewish story. And then in the middle, we have Nevi'im, which is like kind of uh, the prophets, right? You have Joshua and Samuel and Kings and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And this is when like proph prophetic writings are being written. And then the K is for Kedavim, which is like the writings about wisdom and, and how the world works and responding to suffering and, and what does it mean to, to follow God in a broken world. And that's like Psalms and Proverbs, Jude, Ruth, Chronicles. And around like 200 BC, the Jews come together and they kind of say, this is our canon, right? These are all the books that are included in there. And like, this is our canon. This is what the Holy Scriptures are for the Jewish people. 
And then about right in this kind of time period, they're also trying to decide, there's these other writings called the, the Second Temple Writings, they're trying to decide, like, do those belong in our canon? And ultimately, they kind of decide, you know, I, I think they're useful, but they don't belong in the canon of Holy Scripture. So they kind of exist outside. And, and, and if, if you come from a Catholic background or if you know any Catholics, some, some of those writings are included in, in their version of the Bible. And I think there's some helpful things in there. But for whatever reason, the Christians and, and the Jews decide that this is not a part of the Holy Scripture. And then, around the turn of the century, Jesus comes, and his apostles begin to write the New Testament. They begin to write uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the account of Jesus, Acts, the account of the church exploding, and then all of Paul's writings to the churches. And that is how we get this finally formed book, 66 books in one, 40 authors over thousands of years, but all within just a few hundred of the actual events. And that's unheard of when we come to historical documents. And then there's kind of three qualities that they were considering for what does it mean to be canonized. And so those three qualities are divine inspiration. Did it, did it claim to be divine? Did it claim to have inspiration from God? And was it a prophetic voice, someone who, who claimed to be a mouthpiece for God? And then reception by the churches. Was it popular in the churches? Were people using it? Was it useful? Was it edifying? Were they using it to teach and admonish each other? And then connection to an apostle. So did it have authority, right? Was there an apostle or a prophet or did it have some type of um, grounding and tradition? And then they kind of took these qualities and they're like, these are the books that need to be in here that reveal God to humanity. And here's the truth. Most of the reasons that people doubt the Bible, most of the questions that we have about the Bible is because we lack clarity on what exactly the Bible is. Because the, the Bible, it cannot be trusted to be something it does not claim to be. This stool sitting right here, right? I'm gonna put my faith in it and sit down and believe that it's gonna hold my weight. It didn't crash. Right? So I'm putting my faith in this stool. If I brought a hippo on stage, how many of you think that this stool would hold a hippo? Not good chances, right? Because that's not what it was designed to do. I also wouldn't bring my lunch here tomorrow and try to microwave it on this stool because the engineers did not engineer a microwave into it. It's not what it was designed to do. But we do this with scripture. We're like, hey, can you be something that you never actually said you were going to be for my life? And scripture's like, no, I can't do that. I have an intention. And so here's, here's some real quick things about what, what is the Bible not intended to be? I think some common misconceptions. It's not a history book. It's not just a history book. That's not merely what it is. There are, there's the history of, of Judaism in it. Right? The history of the nation of Israel is in it. The accounts of Jesus' life are in it, but it's not just a history book. And if we want it to be just a history book, it'll fail us. Because it's not what it claims to be. And so why would we judge it by those standards? It's also not a science book. Right? There are passages in here about nature, about the world, about creation, about how the world works, but has anybody ever seen in here, like it says, the Bible, a science book? It, it's, not, it's not what it's supposed to be. And so if we try to trust it to give us answers for science, it won't do it because it's not a science book. 
And so we get tripped up on like, my, I doubt because like faith and science don't agree with each other. Well, they do, but this book might not agree with science 100% of the time because it's not intended to do that. It's also not intended to be a book of moral codes and guidelines. Some people use it that way, right? Like they just like, I need to know how to live my life, so I'm just gonna live it by what this book says. And you, you will live a life of morality if you live your life by the Bible, but that is not what it's intended to be. It's not just a book of rules, of codes and guidelines. That's not its intention. And if we use it that way, it can fail us because we're still flawed humans and we'll mess it up. Here's what the Bible is, the only thing it is and what it claims to be. It's the word of God that reveals to us the God of the universe, his action in the world, and his purpose for all creation. That's what this book is. It reveals to us the God who created us. It it, it reveals to us his action in the world. It, It reveals to us his nature. It tells us about the God who is a God of, of relationship and a God who is a God of community, a God who is a God of love and justice and peace. It reveals to us God's character and, and God's wisdom. And it reveals to us our need for God. And then it, it reveals his action in the world. It, it, it reveals how he acts to create and maintain the world and 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 how he desires to be in relationship with his creation, and it, and, it, and it shows how God acts to redeem human history. And it shows us that God's purpose is to reset the world to right again, the way he created it the first time before we messed it up. And, and it reveals to us that God's purpose is to bring all to love and knowledge of him, and it reveals to us that God's purpose is found ultimately in the revelation of Jesus Christ, which every word in this book points toward. That's what this book does. And if we trust it to do that, I promise you, I guarantee you it'll come through. I'm not sure that many of us struggle with whether or not this book is verifiable truth. But I do think there's five common misconceptions, five common arguments against the Bible that bother us. And they're these. It's full of contradictions and it seems at times to disagree with itself. And let me just say that like, the supposed kind of tensions and contradictions in this book, uh, they're usually cases where, again, we just kind of misunderstand the genre that we're reading or the purpose of what we're reading of a certain passage or we're measuring the Bible by some kind of inappropriate standard. Let me give you an example. So like Kings and Chronicles are two accounts of a certain uh, time of history in Israel. They tell wildly different stories even though they're about the same events because they have two different purposes and they're told from two different perspectives. So they contradict with each other because they're told from different perspectives, just like the gospel stories, right? People will sometimes go into the gospels and pick apart differences and inconsistencies there. It's like, well, yeah, because if two people tell a story, they're gonna tell it differently because they have different audiences and they're telling it at different times for different purposes. So, I I mean, yes, the Bible does contradict itself sometimes. That's because it's the nature of a story written over thousands of years, but it never contradicts itself about the things that actually matter. 
Number two, you might hear someone say, well, this Bible, it's full of violence and genocide and prejudice and injustice. And and sometimes this is even commanded by God. Like he actually commands violence. And then additionally, it's been used by Christians throughout, throughout history to justify more violence and oppression. And let me just say that the Bible, because it tells us about the course of human history, it, it's riddled with brutal truths of human history and nature. And, and the truth of the Bible is that people who reject God and who harm other people will eventually receive punishment for their actions. And the instances of divine violence that we see in Scripture are actually just evidence of a God who is responding in justice to an evil world. And don't we want a God who's a God about justice? And then accounts of human use of violence are simply this. They're they're descriptive, not prescriptive. Right? They describe what people did at a current time in history. They're not a prescription for us to live our lives by. So any use of the Bible to propagate or to um, kind of uh, advance human violence is against the very nature of the God who they say to follow. Right? Because the God who's revealed in here is a God of love and justice. They might say, um, so its descriptions of of nature and natural history seem at odds with with science and the empirical world. Well, did you know that God has given us two books? He's given us his holy scripture, and he's given us nature. And both of these reveal who he is. And so it would be antithetical to say that two gifts given by God could be in contradiction to each other because they're both God's gifts to us. So... Science might give us answers for how the world was formed. But we don't need science to tell us that Genesis 1 and 2, uh, while they're vitally interested in the question of who formed the world, they have no interest in explaining to us how the world was formed. That's not their intention. That's not why they're written there. And so if science were to reveal to us that we all came here by evolution, it wouldn't matter because the Bible doesn't claim that we didn't. It just says that God created us. And so the natural world and the Bible reveal God to us. And so they can't be in contradiction with one another because they're both from the creator of the universe. You might say, well, this book is written by ancient and primitive people and it has no value to modern people like ourselves anymore. Well, have you been alive the last two and a half years? Do we seem so modern and sophisticated? and enlightened to you? How arrogant that we would look at a book like this and say it has nothing to teach us because we've evolved to a certain understanding of the world. Certainly that's not true or else the world wouldn't be crumbling around us. And no one has that objection about Plato or Shakespeare. We still learn a lot about literature from Shakespeare even though it was written by an ancient and primitive people. This book still has much to teach to us, and and though it wasn't written to us in our context, it was certainly written for us. And then finally, some people might say, well, Christians can't even agree on what it's saying. So who cares if it's true or not? You guys can't even agree what it says. And the reality is, yeah, there are a lot of different interpretations of this book. But ultimately, 
Its purpose is to reveal to us who Jesus is. And if you talk to any Christian about who Jesus is, we all agree. He's the son of God, sent because God loved us to save us from our sins. And so I think when we ask the question, can, can I trust the Bible? Can you trust the Bible? My answer to you would be, have you tried? I mean, have you really tried to trust it? Do you spend time in it daily? When you have doubts, is it the first place you turn? Have you tried it? Because I believe if you try it, it will prove itself trustworthy. My last two weeks in Malaysia, I met a man whose name I'm gonna change so that if this gets shared on the internet, he's not in danger. His name was Naveed. And he was born in Iran to a Muslim family. And as we started developing our relationship, I was like, there's no way this guy's ever gonna believe. There's no way this guy's ever gonna understand the gospel. It's just too far gone. I started to begin to to doubt whether God could move in his life in a significant way. But as we begin to dialogue, he's like, hey, I'm I'm interested. I wanna know more about your God. And I had just come off this experience of reading John chapter three and it changing my life. And I was like, hey man, why don't we just read the book of John together? And so we read the first three chapters that night. And I was like, hey, we'll, we'll, pick, up, we'll pick up tomorrow and we'll keep reading together. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm really interested. Naveed comes back the next day. Am I ready to get started? He's like, I read it. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I read it all. I read the whole book of John. Couldn't go to sleep. I said, what happened? And he's like, well, as I began to read and I just continued reading the story of Jesus, like it was almost like light was coming off of the pages. And for the first time in my life, I was seeing clearly again. And I could see Jesus. And I knew that he was truth. I was like, and here I am, doubting whether he ever existed. Me of little faith, why did I doubt? Why did I doubt that God is who he says he is? And finally, I was able to answer the question that I was tasked with answering. Why did Jesus have to die? And the answer was never clearer than in that moment. Because Naveed. That's why Jesus had to die. He had to die for Naveed. He had to die for me. And he had to die for you. And that's the story of this book. That if we would just give it authority in our life, it would reveal to us over and over again that God loves us and he wants the best for us. And the best for us is his son, Jesus, who loved us so much that he gave his life for us to pay for our sins so that we might be in relationship with the God who is love. 
And so, can I trust the Bible? Naveed did. I do. Why don't you give it a try? I'll give you a guarantee this morning. If you honestly do that, I know that God will transform your life. That's what I trust the Bible to do. Father God, would would you help us to be in relationship with you and receive your word for us? And when we open it, would you speak to us through it that we might know you better? That you might reveal yourself to us and you might reveal your action in this world. That you might reveal your plan for all of humanity, which is to save us through your son. And ultimately, God, as we read these pages, would you make us more like him? Would you make us a living testimony of the words that are in this book? And we trust you, God. And we say, God, like sometimes we doubt. Would you help us with our unbelief? And turn us back towards faith. Thank you, God. Praise in your name.